All right, good morning and welcome to Chanel. We are so glad that you're with us today. Um, obviously, we're going to be in Judges chapter 3 if you want to go ahead and turn there, but I want to just address just a few quick things or reminders. JJ said next week, Mike Williams will be up here. Won't be me. Some of you, that's a good thing. Um, but Mike Williams will be up here. I'm excited to hear uh, what my, uh, Dr. Williams has to say. I'm excited he'll be with us at Chanel next week. And so if you can, join us for uh, kind of a Q&A in that, that uh, class hour. There'll be donuts, coffee. It'll be a great way to get to know Dr. Williams, but also uh, in the, the 10 o'clock hour, hear him speak up here. So we're excited about that. And then obviously tonight is our Super Bowl party up in the Wortham. Um, it's just a, a fun, casual way to come watch the game or, in my house, watch the commercials. Um, so we, we hope you can join us. If, you, if you're looking for a place to watch the game, you can come up here at 5.30 in the Wortham tonight. Let's pray, and then we will uh, get to the sermon. Heavenly Father, God, we, we love you. God, we thank you for this time that we have together. God, we thank you for the, the communion, God, the singing, the studying of God's Word. God, we just thank you for that opportunity that we have to be there together. God, as we look at your Word here in Judges chapter 3, God, open our hearts and uh, direct us in understanding. It's through your Son that we pray. Amen. I've shared this with a few people uh, already, but this, this morning we're talking about Ehud. And Ehud is a difficult sermon to preach. Uh, why is because I think you should probably maybe read some of it uh, after church. Not during lunch, but maybe later on, look a little bit deeper into the story of Ehud. And so just so you'll know, I'm, I'm not going to cover every detail in the story, but I will be looking at kind of the, some of the spiritual applications that we can take away from it. But the story of Ehud is the story of Judges. Ehud is the second judge that we're introduced to in Judges chapter 3, and his story begins with a connection to what the Israelites have been doing. So it says in Judges chapter 3 verse 1, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not yet experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not, previous ba- had, not had previous battle experience. Now, this is an important thing when you understand how the Israelites understood Scripture. Because in their minds, the only reason why people surrounding them would possibly be there is because God is, is testing them. And they, they, these five nations have been placed around the Israelites as a means to train those descendants who have never had any type of military battle. That's just kind of an important detail when we understand the mindset that the Israelites are entering into the story of Judges. And so in verse 6... Uh, what happens is they start living among them. And as, as you kind of know the story and the history of the Israelites, uh, they start making very bad decisions. And so uh, in first three verses, we get that they're just there to test us. And then in verses five and six, uh, we learn that they are living among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, Pezer- the Pezerites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And in verse six, one of God's commands that we see over and over and over in the Old Testament is to not do this one particular thing, and that's the one particular thing that the Israelites choose to do. And they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Now, this is a theme that you're going to see all throughout Judges, but but a lot in the Old Testament as well in verse seven. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And so the, the writer of Judges is kind of letting us know that the Israelites have kind of turned their hearts against God and they are now serving these other gods. Now this is a larger theme that we see, but this, this sin has to do with following the ways of the other nations, following the gods of Baals and Asherahs. They are straying away from who God created them to be. 
And so it should be of no surprise, entering into the story of Ehud, that God allows Eglon, king of Moab, to control, uh, take control of Israel in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Again, 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 it's because they've already gone through one scene. In verse 12, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And and with the Ammonites and the Amalekites took the city of Jericho, and they ruled for 18 years. And that's the next slide, verses 13 and 14. So Israel finds themselves doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Turn their back on God. They are now connecting more with these foreign nations than with the God who has delivered them. The God who has saved them and created them. Now they are worshiping these gods. And Eglon comes in and he takes control of the city of Jericho. And it says, for 18 years the Moabites ruled this land. But we know as as readers of Scripture that any time there is persecution, any time there is pain, that God will hear that cry of the people and send deliverance. As we understand that that deliverance may not come on the timeline that we want it to. And it may not look like what we want it to look like, but God will show up. And that's what God does. And God provides an unlikely hero. Now before we talk about that hero, I want to talk about a childhood hero of mine. Growing up, I consumed every bit of baseball that I possibly could. I spent my summers at the Hanson baseball fields. Uh, the Colson son, I forget, you're over here. Will and I, we dominated a summer league once. We went undefeated, crushed all of our opponents. One of the best summers of my life. But I grew up playing baseball. I loved it. I watched every bit of baseball that I could get, and I collected baseball cards. And it's been one of the, my favorite things to do is to hand down my baseball cards to Judah. And they, they only really compare to the Pokemon cards that Rylan Henry gave him. Uh, I don't know which one he thinks are more important. I know he thinks one are more powerful than the others. But I've loved being able to pass down a little bit of my love of baseball to my son. But one of my favorite players growing up was Jim Abbott. Abbott played in the MLB for 11 years. Played with the uh, California Angels at the time, the New York Yankees, the Chicago White Sox, and ended his career with the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, the reason why I bring up Jim Abbott this morning is because he had a perceived weakness. Uh, Jim Abbott was born without a right hand. Let that set in for just a second if, if you don't know the story of Jim Abbott. Jim Abbott was a professional pitcher who was born with one hand. If you think about pitching in baseball, you think you might need both hands. And and on paper, you might think there's no way that this individual is going to be any good at baseball. There's no way. But what Jim Abbott did was he learned to look at a perceived weakness and view it as a strength. He didn't let the world, world standards define him and say, hey, Jim, there's no way that you could play professional baseball. And so what we're going to show in just a minute is a clip from probably the highlight of his career. But what I want you to see there is as a left-handed pitcher, what Jim Abbott would do was he would pitch the ball with his left hand, and as soon as the ball was released, he would switch the glove to his left hand. It It was fascinating as a kid to watch this. But also to see how good this individual was when otherwise you would look at this individual and say, hey, there's no way that you're going to be a professional baseball player. And the highlight of most athletes, especially a pitcher, is to pitch a no-hitter. 
And in 1993, Jim Abbott did just that. We've got a short clip of the last pitch of that game. Indians have not had a man pass first base. Byerga batting 318. And a ground ball to short. Velarde, he did it. He did it. No hitter for Jim Abbott. Jim Abbott throws a no hitter and shuts out the Cleveland Indians four to nothing. Mobbed by his teammates. A big hug from Matt Noakes. Okay, I was like, oh, this clip was longer than I thought it was. But, um, but hopefully you saw, one, when he released the, the pitch, how he switched the glove to his other hand. But the reason why I wanted to show that picture is because I think they all understood that Jim Abbott was a unique and powerful pitcher. You see the joy in everybody when they recognize that this individual doesn't have a perceived weakness, but this individual is strong. And this individual is, is a powerful, excellent pitcher. And again, to throw a no-hitter in the major leagues is incredible in itself. But to do it as a one-handed pitcher is, is just amazing to me. And as a kid, I was fascinated by Jim Abbott. Because again, when you, on paper you would say, hey, this guy's got a weakness. There's no way that he should be able to do this. But he didn't let that define him. He wrote his own story. He trusted himself. And he became this legendary pitcher in the MLB. Now, back to the story. Because God sends help to the Israelites. He sends a man named Ehud. Ehud has not been a popular child's name for some reason. I've never seen that in kind of the child's name book. But maybe, maybe after the sermon it will come back. But now Ehud, uh, what makes Ehud unique is that he is a left-handed man. He's also the son of Jared the Benjamite. There's two things that we can pick up immediately in this story. Because Ehud is, is an unlikely hero. He's left-handed at a time when a lot of people in history were not left-handed. I understand now that there's several of us in this church who stand united. Thank you, John Yates, uh, and, and obviously Stan Blue as well. But we've got some left-handed men here, uh, and that's great. You know, we, we've kind of disadvantaged for a long time in our lives with those left-handed desks and dragging the, you know, chalk on the paper or whatever when you write with your left hand. We, we've been through some things. But Ehud is unique for two reasons. He's left-handed when a lot of people at this day and age were not left-handed, but he's also from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe of Israel. So there's two things kind of against him. Now, anytime that you hear a story or a sermon about Ehud, the focus is on his left hand, and it, and it should be, because that is something that the Bible tells us that we should pay attention to. But I want to clarify and acknowledge something that, that in my opinion, I think the reason why Ehud was left-handed in a time and age when most people weren't is because he likely had a disability. I think it's, it's, it's maybe there in the text that Ehud likely couldn't use his right hand. Now again, it's a perceived weakness. In a day and age when everyone battled and fought with their right hand, Ehud couldn't use his right hand. So what Ehud does is he doesn't quit, he doesn't give up. He looks and says, okay, I can use my left hand. Now what kind of makes this story unique is it is a very kind of aggressive, militaristic story. But in this day and age, what people normally would have done is if you're right-handed, your sword would have been on your left side. 
So you would have drawn the sword from this side. And so what happens in this story is that any time anyone would go in to meet the king, it was very common that they would pat them down on the side that they believed that there would be a sword. So in verse 16, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now again, in most common situations, if somebody was going in to meet the king, which Ehud was, Ehud was going into the presence of King Eglon, what they would have done is they would have patted him down on his left side, you got to do the you know, L sometime, but they would have patted him down on the left side and then recognized that there was not a weapon. Thus, Ehud is not a threat to King Eglon. But as we know, Ehud is left-handed. And so his sword would have been strapped on the right side of his body, which means he would have drawn it from this side. They would have not had an idea that he, was, he had any type of weapon at all. So when they searched him, assuming he was right-handed, there was no knife on his left hip. And so for time, and, and to keep this PG, um, I'm not going to go into all the gory details as to what happens next. Because Ehud finds himself in the presence of the king, and I'll just say he kills the king, and he escapes in this movie-esque way, escaping through the porch and locking the doors behind him. And so what happens is all the guards assume that King Eglon is doing kind of what King Eglon normally does. And they just wait. It's not proper to go interrupt the king especially when what they think he's doing. It's not proper for them to go and knock on the door and maybe rush him or unsettle him. They've got to just kind of sit out and wait for him to come out when he is good and ready. And so in verse 26, while they waited, this is talking about the guards of King Eglon, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. He escapes. This is an individual who, on paper, should not be in this position, who should not be leading these people, preparing them to fight the Moabites, who have been their, their oppressors for 18 years. But in this, this movie-esque scene, Ehud kills King Eglon. He escapes, barely passing all these individuals. If, if one thing had gone wrong, the guards would have known and the whole plan would have been foiled. But he escapes. In the next verse, follow me, he ordered. Think about that for just a second. Because when I, when I studied this text, that, that phrase just kept coming out over and over again as I read through Judges chapter 3. Because this is an individual who likely, if, if he couldn't use his right hand, would have been bullied. It would have been told, you, you, you can't be used in service. We don't need you here, Ehud. Maybe you need to find a different skill, a different thing to do. But Ehud kept recognizing that God had a purpose for him, that God had a plan. Anytime that maybe somebody said, not now, Ehud, or this isn't your place, Ehud kept saying, God can use me. God has a plan for me. And so when you hear the words, follow me, read them with that in the background. As somebody who was probably told no, or you don't fit here. And I, I hear so much power and joy in his voice recognizing that he has served God, even against the odds. And so it says, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, and not one escaped. 
you know this story has a little bit of PG-13 in it when that's the part that I'm comfortable reading, that 10,000 people were murdered. And I thank you, Jamie. And I say this as a point of emphasis, that this is an individual who should not have been in this position. Society should have written him off because he didn't follow the status quo. He wasn't functioning like everybody else was. And the story is wild and crazy, but look how it ends. In Judges chapter 3, verse 30, that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. The peace that the Israelites experience comes from someone who the world may have viewed as having a weakness. But that's not how God saw Ehud. God viewed Ehud as valuable and needed for the kingdom. Ehud had confidence and the ability to trust in God in a moment that would define this period for the Israelites. For 80 years, they experienced peace. If you've studied the history of the Israelites, that is a long time for things to be going good for them. And it comes from an unlikely source. It comes from somebody that the world said, you are weaker than me. You don't look like me. You don't fit into our box. But from that, God delivered And instead of saying, I'm not your person, God, or I can't be used in this moment, Ehud trusted God and said, why not me? It's easy for us to compare ourselves to the standards of this world, to see things that the world may view as weaknesses or disqualifications, but God does not view us that way. God views us as creations needed to further the kingdom of heaven on earth. And Ehud does not let the expectations or standards of this world define what he is able to do. Ehud's confidence comes from the Most High, and because Ehud has confidence from God, he has that confidence to say, why not me? And so this week, if you find yourself in a situation where you're looking around and you're saying, look, man, I I don't have what it takes, or everybody around me says that I have these weaknesses, that there's no way that I could serve God, that I could benefit the kingdom of God, I would encourage you to look at the story of Ehud. As somebody who the world said, you don't fit here, or you have to use your left hand, Because when Ehud heard those things, he blocked them out and he said, no, God can use me. And he answered that question with, why not me? Let's stand and sing together.